Lifting the face of the poor declares the Lord God of hosts. Let's pray together. How we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would indeed inhabit this sermon and this sacred moment that we have as your people to look at your inspired and errant word, to be guided, to be led, to be brought to repentance, and to be brought to action. So we pray that would happen in the next few moments together in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> a while back, I was out taking a trail run. In the course that I was on, I was going to do three laps. And on the second lap, I had delayed eating. I had this uh, snack bar with me. You know, one of those little snack bars, I had that with me. And I had delayed until the second lap. And I had played every trick on myself. Oh, when I get to this certain point, that's when I get to eat my bar. It was a bar, not a carrot on a stick. But it was motivating me. And so I get to that point in the run, and I carefully unwrap it. And I take a bite out of it, and oh, it's just fantastic. You know, here I am. I'm running down the trail, holding the bar kind of like this down at the bottom. Um, and enjoying this first bite, letting that energy return, and I look over and the bar broke off. I'm holding like a half inch of it. The bar, had, which had been in my pocket, broke off there at the bottom, and I look back and it's sitting in the dust of the trail. I had looked forward. This was all I had to look forward to. And I would have eaten it off the ground, absolutely, except it was one of these kind of sticky bars and it landed in the dust. And so that moment, you know, I just had a little pity party for myself on the trail far from home because I only had another bite left and the rest was down in the dust. Now, when I describe that to you and we think about the race of life and and we're looking for and we long for refreshment and energy. Oftentimes, we Christians have, like I did, a little pity party. You know, we feel excluded, surrounded. We know that the beliefs that we have, which are according to Scripture, are not held in high esteem in any way, shape, or form out in the world. And so we tend to worry. We have anxiety over the state of the world, and we forget a very important truth. We forget a very important truth that's here for us in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13. The Lord has taken his place to contend. God contends. He fights for his people. And when we are having our evangelical pity parties because the beliefs that we have or we feel surrounded or the beliefs that we have are in the minority in our current culture in society or we feel surrounded, we feel bullied, we feel alone, we tend to look at young families and families with children, and we think to ourselves, oh, I'm so glad I'm not raising kids right now. That is not good. 
we forget this grand and glorious truth that God contends for his people. We don't have to worry about the state of society or the world. We don't have to have anxiety for small children or our grandchildren and the world, the crazy world they're growing up in. And because the Lord has taken his place to contend. Now, if you look back at Exodus, this idea is not only in Isaiah. <clears throat> it is in uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 14. And what happens there? You remember God has liberated Israel. They are on the way to cross the Red Sea, except Egypt is in pursuit. And you have a bunch of former slaves who are unarmed watching an army coming towards them. And obviously, this is a cause for anxiety and worry with them. They think they're going to die. And what does God tell them in Exodus 14, 14? He says, the Lord will fight for you. He will contend. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. That truth that God contends for us, that he fights for us, that he takes care of us, that he assures us with his love is something you have to have as a Christian nowadays or you're just going to be like me on the trail having a pity party over what I lost or over what our society lost. And this idea that God contends for us gives us confidence when we look at the future generation and we look at our grandchildren and the crazy world they're growing up in and 1 John 4, 4 tells us, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Are we going to live the Christian life cognizant of these truths? Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If we belong to Christ, why are we having an evangelical pity party? Why are we worried about being outnumbered in the culture? Why are we concerned for how we might be treated by the world if God treats us fantastically? The Lord will contend for us. And you may be saying, oh, this sounds good. This sounds good. But I'm still going to have my pity party over my broken bar. You may say, this sounds good but show it to me. Show it to me. Well, it's demonstrated here for us in this passage. Back to Isaiah 3. How do I know? How do I know that I know that I know that the Lord contends for his people and I don't have to freak out and have a pity party over the state of the world? How do I know this? Well, the first thing I'm going to show you here, it's in verses 9 through 11. First thing I'm going to show you is that God tells. Now, the name used for God here uh, in Isaiah 3 is worth looking at for a moment. So we see at the end of verse 15, declares the Lord God of hosts. And then as well, that same title is used of God in chapter 3, verse 1. So in verse 1 and verse 15, these are the bookends we have the name for God, the Lord God of hosts. This is his power name, if you will. 
He is the captain of a spiritual force that is able to implement his way and his will. That's what the title means. He's the general. And at his command is every resource he needs to bring about his glory and his way. So immediately you should have confidence because the Lord God of hosts, he is the one that contends for us. And what does he say? What does he tell? Look in verse 9. The first thing, he tells the wicked something. He tells the righteous something. Verse 9, here's what he tells the wicked. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Now, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. This is the third reference in Isaiah to Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a braggy and arrogant aspect to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which makes them basically an example of how God will judge. We live in a time where sin is being proclaimed like this in verse 9. Well, what, what is God's response to their proclamation, their open practice of sin? He proclaims something, and that's in verse 9. Woe to them. Woe to the wicked. And this reminds us that the Lord God of hosts, He sees what's going on. He is not absent-minded, forgetful, or asleep. He knows what's going on. And he sees it, and he pronounces woe on the wicked. Verse 9, they have brought evil on themselves. In other words, it's only their own fault. They have only themselves to blame. God is righteous, just, merciful, loving, and compassionate. And those who refuse him will be judged and the evil brought on themselves. So he tells the wicked, woe to them. But what does he tell the righteous? Look in verse 10. Tell the righteous that it shall be what? Well with them. The culture then in the situation in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah's time was that you had a remnant of righteous people. You had a small number, a minority number of people within the society who were following God and you had others who weren't. They were surrounded, and to that culture, which is like us during this time, we are surrounded by the wicked and unrighteous and those who proclaim their sin openly. What does God tell us? It will be well with you. Tell the righteous it will be well with them. Now, you may think for a moment, I'm not, too, I'm not feeling too righteous. The Bible knows two categories of people, the wicked and the righteous. And the righteous are the ones whose lives are hidden in Christ. In other words, they have experienced the forgiveness of what Christ has done for us on the cross. This is uh, the fact that Christianity is more than just forgiveness. It is a declaration that we are righteous. This is called the doctrine of justification. And what is that? It's the declaration that we are righteous, that though we are sinners, God sees the righteousness of His Son once and for all, by faith imputed to us, given to us by His grace. And so at the cross, atonement is made for our sins, 
and the righteousness of Christ is given to us. It's like our record has changed then. And so, here's what I'm getting at. We are those righteous. If you have hidden your life in Christ, if you placed your faith in Him as your Lord and Savior, then truly you are the righteous. And what does God tell you in 2022 amidst all the chaos, moral confusion, and wackiness that's out there? What does He say to you? It is well with you. It is well with you. Why would that be? Well, verse 10 For they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Well, what does that mean? This is not works salvation. I've just told you that salvation is by grace alone. But it is that the good things that we do are not wasted. They will be rewarded. They will live after us, as it were. In Galatians 6, 9, we read, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And that's the assurance that the good things that we do, the good things that we do will lead to fruit and to reward. And that's the case that's made there. When we live the righteous life, the way God wants us to live, and we're obedient to Him, then it does not go unnoticed. It is rewarded And we shall eat, in other words, be satisfied with the fruit of our deeds. We'll be satisfied in life for the good that we have done. And then verse 11, God goes back to the wicked and he tells them again, in case they've missed it, woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them. And you see the contrast here, it's, it shall be well with the righteous It's going to be ill for the wicked. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Verse 11, this is the justice of God working out in the fact that he does not miss the wicked and the sin that they are doing now. And it is a warning that if we're in that wicked category, we need to shift by God's grace that we might be called righteous through the work that Christ has done for us, that it might be well with them. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Think about a hard situation in your life. Think about a relationship that's broken, maybe. A diagnosis that you're struggling with. A health situation. Uh, Just getting old. That counts here. The world not being the way it was when you grew up. Whatever situation you want to sort of conjure up, whatever situation brings you down, maybe makes you depressed or makes you anxious or worried, whatever that situation is, I want you to remember this. God has pronounced over it what? Verse 10, it shall be well with them. God pronounces that. Now, we didn't ask for a difficult situation. We didn't want it. Maybe that difficult situation is created through our own sin or our own stupidity or someone else's. Whatever, however this difficult situation came into our life, it might be just the fact that we live in a fallen world. The world isn't the way it was meant to be. It's fallen. However that situation came to you, 
God pronounces over it. He doesn't call it good, but he says it shall be well with the righteous. That as we endure and struggle through a diagnosis, a broken relationship, other people's sin against us, the consequences of our sin, as we go through that, on the other side, it shall be well with them. It shall be well with them. And you and I, the pity parties that we have as evangelicals, that's something we need to repent over. God's people are surrounded in no uncertain terms back in Isaiah, just like we are, and God pronounces over them. It is well. It will be well with them. And so the call for us is to take God at His word and to live with that assurance and knowledge that it will be well. We might not be able to discern how, but God has pronounced it, and that must be enough for us. So we're talking about how the Lord of hosts contends for us. And one way he contends for us is he tells us the end and what that's going to be like so we can endure through and persevere through the hard times. So what does he tell tells he tells us it shall be well with them. And then the second thing he does is he claims. He claims. And that's in uh, verse 12 here. Verse 12. Don't miss this. Verse 12. How's it start? My people. I'm not saying that about Israel if if I'm God. Go back to chapter 1, because really chapter 1, chapter 2, and much of chapter 3 is this expose on how Israel has done the exact things they shouldn't. And even in verse 2, and Isaiah 1 is so important, and if you're visiting with us and you're just kind of joining us on this Isaiah series, chapter 1 is the whole book of Isaiah in miniature. And what does God say in verse 2? Hear, O heavens, and give Ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have what? Rebelled against me. So that's a big sin. They have rebelled against God. In one of the ways they've rebelled, verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And even there, do you see God's grace? He still claims them. My people. Go back to chapter 3. My people people. How bad is the situation? Look in verse 12. Infants are their oppressors. Okay, what does this mean? Well, one thing in the ancient world and maybe one thing in the modern world. Infants are their oppressors. In other words, they are so weak as a nation that a parade of babies could kick down the door and take them over. I'm not too afraid of babies. But God is saying you're so weak militarily that a bunch of babies could take you over. Infants are your oppressors. Now, in our modern age, here's an interpretation for you. What about the child-centered family? The family that places everything on the kid and really tries, you know, parents living their life uh, through their child, uh, Uh, their children growing up thinking the world 
revolves around them. It doesn't. Newsflash, it doesn't. Infants are their oppressors. It can be very oppressive to be in a family like that. And so there's a dual meaning there. And then women rule over them. In other words, there's no men around to lead. So the babies are taken over and the women are taking over. And just as Adam abdicated his responsibility to Eve in the garden, where was he when Eve took the fruit? Verse 12, women rule over them. But here's the thing. So it's a bad situation. But he still calls them my people. He still calls them my people. God still claims us even in the midst of our sin. And through Jesus Christ, he calls us his own, my people. Have you ever been in a group of uh, parents? Uh, I never have uh, been in this situation I'm describing. But, you know, a kid is misbehaving and uh, someone says, hey, whose kid is that? Never happened to me, but maybe to you. <laughs> whose kid is that? In other words, who's going to claim that kid? It's kind of a shameful thing, right, to say that. We're, we're, we're shaming the parents because of the behavior of the kid. I, I have news for you. God still says over Israel, in spite of what they have done, he still says, my people my people. It gets worse because in Hosea, you remember Hosea told to marry a prostitute and one of, one of his kids, God says, name the kid Lo-Ami. That means not my people in Hebrew. But here in Isaiah, he says, my people. He still claims us. You know, if you have wandered far away from God, wandered far away maybe from the faith that you grew up in, maybe you are just getting back into church and walking with God, you need to know. He says over you, in Christ, He says over you, my people. Hey, whose kid is that? My people. That's what God says. And I want you to live like you are claimed that way. We are not orphans. We are not spiritual orphans. We have a heavenly father and he claims us, my people. We can end our pity parties. We can live in a hostile culture with great and powerful assurance, knowing we are loved and cared for by God. We are his people. He claims us. He claims us. And then he, uh, verse 12 here, again we get, oh, my people. And then there's a leadership problem in Israel. Your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your past. In other words, God's people can't discern the pathway they need to go because their leadership isn't doing the job uh, they should. They have swallowed up the course of your path. So what, here's what we're getting at. God, the Lord God of hosts, he has every resource at his disposal to help us. What has he done? He contends for us. 
We don't have to be anxious or worried living in an ungodly culture because God, verse 13, contends for us. How does he contend for us? He tells us it will be well with the righteous. And then he claims us. He calls us his people. And the last thing here, he judges. The Lord God of hosts judges. And that's in verses 13 through 15. The Lord has taken his place to contend. So he's going to fight for us, struggle with us. And then look at this portrayal in verse 13. He stands to judge peoples. In another place where God is depicted, Isaiah 6, he's sitting on the throne. But here he's standing, and it's an image of activity, that God is coming to the aid of his people, and he's coming to judge. And you might think for a moment, Acts 7, 56, where Stephen sees Jesus standing, ready to receive him as he's being martyred and stoned. The Lord stands to judge peoples. He is active. And what will he do? Verse 14, the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. Oh, the judgment starts with the leadership. With the leadership. And what does God pronounce to this failed leadership? It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. Now, the vineyard, we're going to get to it in uh, chapter 5 in a little bit here. But the vineyard is emblematic of how God has cared for his people and nurtured them along. And so what's being said here is that the elders and the princes of his people who should be leading in such a way that it benefits people, they're leading in a way that takes advantage of them and devours them. And in fact, if you went into their houses, the spoil of the poor is there. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. They have robbed the poor. And I want to tell you that as you think about leadership, I want to tell you that the least members of society and how they are faring is the true measurement of the good that leadership is doing. You've got to look at how the vulnerable of a society are doing, and then you can judge leadership uh, by that standard. And here in verse 14, we find out it's you, the leaders, who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. So it's especially how the vulnerable fare that we can judge uh, leadership by, and the quality of leadership to God has everything to do with how the vulnerable of a society are, are faring. Now let me pause there. So who's the vulnerable in our society? I would say the poor, certainly, the homeless, refugees, immigrants. Uh, I would say those who struggle with mental health um, and those who are materially uh, poor. Now, in particular, because I'm a particular preacher, I'm going to tell you that clearly with regard to immigration, people should follow the laws of our land. You know, my father did when, when he came here, and he immigrated here. And whether you, when we make, when our leaders make immigration a political issue, the poor and the vulnerable of our society suffer the most, and it speaks to the character 
of the kind of leadership. Turning your back on the problem, ignoring it, hoping it goes away, these kinds of behaviors and activities is a poor, failed, unbiblical leadership according to this standard here. Likewise in the church, you can judge church uh, leadership by how maybe the weakest members of a church, maybe the, the least spiritual or the most spiritually immature, how are they doing in a church? Can people come into Trinity? Can they gain a sense of what the true gospel message is and what we're about as a church? That's how you can measure uh, leadership. How pastors, how elders shepherd and take care of people and interact with them and pray with them. These are all ways you can measure uh, leadership within uh, the church. Verse 15, what do you mean by crushing my people? So you understand that God perceives and interprets this failed leadership as extreme oppression uh, happening to the poor. In other words, they're doing the opposite. They should lead in a way that benefits and lifts up the poor, but they're crushing them. And then look at this imagery here, verse 15, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. In a few weeks, we're going to have officer nominations as a church. So church officers are deacons and elders. And we uh, ask that the congregation would nominate, that if you're a member here at Trinity, you would nominate certain people to serve, certain men to serve, who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the biblical qualifications for leadership. Leadership is vitally important in a church, absolutely. We would say it's important for our country, but I would also tell you it's super important in the church, more important even. And so I encourage you, take advantage of those opportunities to nominate uh, men who are qualified, who lead in such a way it benefits others. And second, second point here, um, with regard to application, uh, you're going to go to the polls in November, I hope, and you're going to vote. And you should really vote for, vote your conscience and vote for ethical leaders who lead in such a way that it benefits their followers. And I want to tell you that crushing my people and absolutely inflation, absolutely is grinding the face of the poor. Who feels inflation the most? those who have the least resources to deal with it. Inflation is an example of grinding the face of the poor. Absolutely. And uh, we could trace, just because I'm an equal opportunity offender, it's both sides of the aisle who are guilty. These irresponsible fiscal policies that our leaders implement created the inflation problem that we have now. And who suffers the most? The poor. The poor suffer the most because they have the least resources to deal with increasing uh, costs. And so I want to tell you, we need leaders who lead responsibly, uh, economically, and make good fiscal decisions, not to fatten their own wallets, but for the benefit of the citizens. Why is this so radical to say, look, if we elect you, if we put you in this position, our expectation 
is that you would use your power to benefit others. We need to return to that kind of leadership. And that kind of leadership is really spoken of here in Isaiah. God's elders and shepherds are guilty of not leading in this way. And so we should, as God's people and as citizens of this country, demand the kind of leadership that benefits others. That's good leadership. And so we see that the Lord God contends. He fights for His people. And that's why we don't need to have a pity party. We don't have to be anxious about the state of the world. He contends for His people. He fights for us. Well, how does He do this? We see that He tells us it will be well with them. If your life is hidden in Christ, it will be well with you. And then we're told and we see that He claims us. Whose kid is that? Oh, that's Israel. That's my people. He claims us. And not only that, we have the great assurance that God will, in point of fact, judge, that his justice will rule. We long to see that day, and we hope to see vestiges of it in our own time. The Lord contends for his people. That's the good news for us. Let's pray together. God, how we ask that you indeed would remind us of our obligation to elect leaders who would be ethical leaders and would lead in a way that would benefit their followers. And we pray that inside and outside the church, especially as we enter into officer nominations soon for us and we think about those men who will serve as elders and deacons. Lord, let us leave this place with the assurance, with the assurance that you are for us and that you have pronounced, even over the hard and difficult things in our life, you have told us it shall be well with them. And so, Lord, let us have that assurance, that confidence, that not only do we belong to you, but you claim us. Even in our struggle with sin, you claim us. And it's because of that we want to glorify you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.